There is, uh, or are really two songs that I think little kids are taught. The first one that they're taught is Jesus Loves Me, which is a great song. I mean, think about the depth of theology and the richness of all of that that they are taught. Great song. The next song is Be Careful, Little Eyes, What You See. And frankly, what a terrible, terrible song. Uh, it's, it, 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 paints, it paints for little kids who are first taught that Jesus loves them and they live in a world of love, that the world is actually terrifying because of Jesus. You're told, be careful what you, you see and, and hear and touch and, and feel and all of this. I mean, you're living, you're living in a world where you are literally in moral, mortal jeopardy the entire time. Because mixed message, a father of love is looking down. That, there's nothing about that that should comfort any of us. Now, there's a chance I'm overthinking it. Maybe not, but there is, there's a little bit of a chance that I'm overthinking it, especially when you stop and consider that an apt title for today's message would be careful, be careful Little Ears. In fact, that is the title of today's message. We need to be careful what we hear, but because of how we take in information, we also need to be careful of what we see, too. Let me give you a startling statistic pulled from Forbes magazine. It's going to blow your mind. 90% of the data available to us was created in the last two years. Think about that. 90% of the data available to us was created in the last two years. So then, it is very likely, I've seen this written, that a person in a single day on their phone will encounter more information than somebody a hundred years ago would have encountered in an entire year. And let me give you some news, folks. There's not a human being alive that can process that. There's just way too much going on. So we make these attempts that actually wind up hurting us. What we do is we create what I call thought ghettos, where we draw people to ourselves who think exactly like we think. They, these thought ghettos are informed by our inherent biases, we all have them, and then they are perpetuated through secular reasoning. So suddenly, Everybody that is around me thinks like I do and feels like I do and reads like what I do. And then, because there are a million other of these little thought ghettos out there, they begin to be our enemies. And our commitment is not to change their mind. Our commitment becomes to destroy them. This is how the world in which we live operates. We are awash in information and we are drowning in that information to our spiritual demise. And so how do we stay afloat when there is that much information, that much data out there for us? We will, in fact, get an idea of how to do that from the letter of 1 John. So if you would please find 1 John chapter 4 in your copy of God's Word. Now, John is writing a letter to churches, actually a, a network of house churches that he oversaw, um, and he is speaking to them about a very specific issue, and he's giving them a very specific strategy to deal with that issue. But there are principles embedded in the instruction that he gives that can help us 
both in the specific real-world application of the specific thing he's talking about and then also in the other efforts that we need to make to assess information. So this is going to be a really helpful passage of Scripture. Now, I've waited 13 weeks, 13 weeks to say what I'm about to say. Would you stand, please, to honor the reading of God's Word? Just out of curiosity, anybody ever stand up at home? All right? Freak. Complete freak. You, you should have, you never should have stood up, Nancy. It's just so odd, so odd. Randomly standing up in your home. But hopefully your family was more gracious than I was. All right? All right, let's read God's Word together, beginning in verse 1 of 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. All right, so it's been a while since we've been together, and we've just for the past couple of weeks been back in the letters of John after an extended period of time in Job. So we may not just immediately pick up on exactly what's going on. So let's just ask a couple of questions I think will be helpful for us getting started. He's obviously issuing a warning, correct? He's issuing a warning. So why is he issuing this warning? He's issuing this warning because a teaching is starting to take root in this network of house churches that he oversees. It's impossible to know the specifics of the teaching, but in general, we can tell from the book itself that it was the teaching that somehow Jesus was a, an important person, a person to be admired. His teaching was um, to be respected, but Jesus was not himself God in human flesh. He was not the eternal God who had come to the earth, made his dwelling among us, as John says in John chapter 1, to live among us. In other words, they were denying what theologians call the incarnation, right? Again, it's just in generalities. We don't know the absolute specifics of it, but there was a denial of the incarnation. And so then, who were the false prophets? The false prophets were people who were teaching this in the church. So, so in other words, they were hearing from John and and his leaders, the, the true gospel, but these others were popping up and saying, no, that is incorrect. And it was really starting to take root because the people were so relationally susceptible to it. Let me explain what I mean. You know, I've been, I've been pastor here for a long time. In fact, some of you um, maybe have never had another pastor but me, some of you maybe have never had a pastor at this church but me. For some of you, I may have been the pastor that you have sat under the longest. So I've been here a long time, and there is naturally trust that is built up there. Now, let's just say that I begin to deviate from what God's Word teaches us about God, the nature of Christ, the nature of our world. Let's just say I begin to deviate from that in some way. After all those years, even though you might know this is wrong, there would, there would be kind of a temptation to say, yeah, but it's Derek. It's Derek, and I know him, and I can trust him. Now, add to that, let's say that I drew people off from this body, people that you um, are in Sunday school class with and people that maybe you've gone to eat with and spend time relationally with. Let's say I drew some people off, and, and they came with me. 
and you mourn the loss of those relationships. And let's just say that that somebody in that little relational network that you lost comes to you and says, you know what, Derek, what he's, what he's saying is, is really not that much different than what you've already heard. That would prove, in a church of our size and multiple campuses, that would prove very difficult to resist. It was proving almost impossible for house churches who knew everybody in the congregation. In smaller communities where everybody knows everybody, it was proving almost impossible for these people to resist it. And so people were being drawn off from it, and people were, were being tempted to, to go with those relationships. And so what, what, uh, what John is saying in, in verse 1 is this. He's saying, don't accept uncritically everything you hear. You cannot do that. You cannot just say, because you like someone, or because there's something compelling about what they are saying, or something that is familiar about what they are saying, you just can't accept uncritically what they are saying to you. Every time you hear something, you have to test it, he says. You have to test what you're hearing. So, so what is this test that he is offering? Look at verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, there's actually something underneath the claim itself. Remember, the, the claim that these people are making is that Jesus is not God in human flesh. But there's a claim underneath that that's actually foundational to it. And the foundation to it is this. The reason I know these false teachers are saying that Jesus is not God in human flesh is because Jesus appeared to me and told me. Appeared to me in a vision. Appeared to me in a dream. Jesus appeared to me and told me that it is not true what John is saying. John is saying that Jesus was the eternal God who came to live among us. Jesus told me that that's not true. And so you can kind of begin to understand as you know that why John has said certain things over and over again. He starts the book saying, I am here to write to you about what I have seen with my eyes, heard with my ears, touched with my hands. What he is arguing all the way through the book is that my claim to have heard this from Jesus is superior to anybody else's claim to have heard this from Jesus because I actually saw him and knew him and they just claim a dream which might have been a bad fig. My claim is superior. And the way that you assess the claim itself, Jesus told me this, is by applying, John says, this test. Anyone who says that Jesus is the eternal God who's come to live among us, that one is speaking from God. Conversely, look at verse 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So simply put, if someone says that Jesus is from God, then you can trust them. If someone says Jesus is not from God, is not God, you cannot trust them. This is the specific thing that John is speaking to this specific church, but this specific thing has a specific application to the world in which we live. Let me give you some illustrations. You're sitting at home, Saturday morning, minding your own business. The doorbell rings. And like a freak, you answer it. I mean, nobody answers a doorbell anymore. It's just, it's inherently dangerous. Get one of those video things 
look at it. If you don't want to answer it, don't answer it. But like a freak, you answer the door. You go to the door. There are two nicely dressed ladies there. Look like sweet, gentle souls. They say to you, we would like to leave you some literature about Jesus. You say, that is awesome. I love Jesus. I love reading about Jesus. But before I take the information, let me ask you something. Do you believe that Jesus is the eternal God sent from heaven to live among us? They say, we believe that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father and sent to us. You say, that is awesome. Do you believe he's God? They say, well, we believe he's divine. Terrific. It's not what I asked. Do you believe he's God? And because they're Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, well, we believe he is a God, but not the God. Don't take the literature. Let's reset. You're sitting at home Saturday morning. Doorbell rings. Like a freak, you answer it. You go to the door, and there are people there, two guys, great-looking young men, dressed in suits. They say, we're glad you answered the door. Nobody does anymore. <laughs> We'd like to leave you a book about Jesus. You say, that is awesome. I love Jesus. I love reading about Jesus before I take the book. Let me ask you a question. You believe that Jesus is the eternal God come to earth to live among us? They say, we believe that Jesus is the only begotten of the Father sent to live in the world. What's well, great. Do you believe he's God? We believe he's divine. Terrific. It's not what I asked. Do you believe he's God? And because they are from the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because they're Mormons, they say, well, we believe that, that Jesus is the, the firstborn son of an eternal God and his celestial wife, Mary, and that he is a hybrid God-human. In essence, in essence, what Mormons believe about Jesus is that he's Peter Quill from Guardians of the Galaxy, and I'm not kidding. That he's half and half. Don't take the book. You see what I'm saying? There is a real-world application for us to uh, take away from this message in how we encounter people who make claims about Jesus. But is there a broader thing that we can learn? Do we need to even learn it? I would suggest to you that there are some broader things, and we do need to learn it. Multiple times over the stay-at-home order, I and other elders had to address certain questions. Somebody would either call, text, or email us breathlessly, and it would always start with the words, I have heard on the radio, or I have read on the internet, or on, and this is terrific always, Facebook. Um, and then they will follow it up with some kind of terrifying claim that has them all wrapped around the axle, that they're uncertain of. And the reason that that happens is because we have not learned to, un, to, 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 to deal with truth claims in a way that is helpful, that, that helps us, and that honors God. And there are principles in what we have just read 
that can help us navigate all of that. So I want to share those with you right now. First, something to understand. Behind every propositional statement is a spirit. Behind every propositional statement is a spirit. You say, boy, pastor, that's good. What's a propositional statement? A propositional statement is simply a statement of fact. And what this is teaching us is that behind statements of fact is a spirit. Did you notice that not once in this does he say, do not believe everyone that talks to you, but test everyone. Not once does he say that. He says, do not believe every spirit that informs the truth statement, but test the spirit. He is not ever delving into the personalities of these people who are teaching these things. He is raising our awareness past the people to the spiritual reality that is undergirding what they are actually saying. He is saying that when we deal with this particular confession about Christ, we are entering into a spiritual realm. That the debate over this is not a debate of logic. The debate over this is a debate being waged in the spiritual realm. This coincides with what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 towards the end when he tells us the reality in which we live is not a reality of flesh and blood, but is it, out, it is a reality in which there is a war going on all around us in the spiritual realm that is making, making uh, it's, it's, itself known in the actions and in the conversations of us here on this earth. We war, we debate in a spiritual sense. Ultimate reality is ultimately a spiritual reality, which makes truth claims ultimately a spiritual reality. And I am saying to you that that is true of every single statement, not just ones attached to biblical uh, doctrine. That every statement of fact is undergirded by a spiritual reality. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said in John 8, 44, of, of Satan, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so any falsehood is rooted in that spiritual reality. On the other hand, Paul says to Titus in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 that God does not lie. So any truth that we hear is rooted in that spiritual reality. And if we do not understand that when we are debating facts with one another, if we just think we're trying to win an argument, we are walking into danger because we are missing the spiritual reality behind it. Now, John's specific test is not universal. In other words, he doesn't mean for us to go marching into the world with only one question to test truth claims. He is not saying that you have to believe and can trust to be true someone who claims the sky to be pink if they acclaim that Jesus is the eternal God come from heaven. 
He is not telling us that we need to do that. So then, how do we test those spirits? If there is a spirit behind every statement of fact, every propositional statement, how do we take what John is showing us here, what, God, what John is doing here, and apply a real-world test to try to determine what is true and what is not? Here's the next thing I have for you. Every propositional statement must be measured by Christ. Every propositional statement, every statement of truth, must be measured by Christ. And by that, I mean that the life and the teaching and the work of Christ on the cross is the ultimate standard by which we assess whether something is true or not true. You say, well, how do I do that? Let me, let me encourage you to do this. This is, this is the simplest way I could figure out how to do it. When you hear somebody say something as a statement of fact, put what they've just said in the mouth of Jesus. And does it fit? Does it fit? Can you see Jesus saying that? Can you see that statement supported by the teaching of Jesus? Can you see that statement supported by the teaching of the, the New Testament? And if it doesn't fit, then then reject it. So could we realistically see Jesus based on what we know of his life, based on the Jewish theology that undergirded him, based on what we read in the New Testament, honestly saying a fetus isn't a child? Well, of course not. We couldn't see Jesus saying that. Thus, we know the spirit behind anyone who makes that statement is the spirit of the evil one, the spirit of of the liar. Could we see realistically Jesus based on what we know of his life, his teaching, his ministry, the Jewish theology that undergirded him, what we see in the New Testament? Could we see Jesus realistically saying there are no restraints whatsoever on sexual expression? Well, of course not. We couldn't see Jesus saying that, and thus we know that the spirit behind anyone who would make that statement is the spirit of the evil one. But this also helps us assess the spirit that drives other by assessing their relationship with Christ and their relationship with the truth. If someone routinely traffics in half-truths and outright falsehoods, we then know the spirit that is driving them, even if they don't know that themselves, even if they happen to be good people, maybe even believers. During the stay-at-home order, I and, and other elders had to answer whether or not we were reporting the names of people who attended online to the government. Now, the first time I, I it was, had that question posed to me, I, I said, What? I mean, why? Where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It comes from where it always comes from, a radio show. It always comes from a radio show. And someone had heard on the radio, seen on the internet, that, that, that churches were being instructed to turn in attendance records to the government. And the reason they were believing this is because a known liar and fearmonger who happened also, in addition to his radio show, be hawking a book, took a statement made by a local elected official out of context, pushed it to his followers to read. Church members didn't test the spirit and were hand-wringing, are you going to turn us in? Now, it just so happened that some of these people who were wringing their hands were also telling us, you need to defy the order, you need to be bold, but just don't tell anybody I'm there. 
you know, a little hypocrisy in that. Because there's not a testing of the Spirit. Would Jesus handle truth like this man? Would Jesus, would Jesus traffic in fear like this man? Of course not. It's that simple. You can apply it in that way. I have to routinely address other kinds of concerns. Concerns about, about whether we're being uh, drawn into liberalism, it, whether that's taking root in our church because of something that someone heard on the internet who is saying, saying that anybody who deals with issues of justice, racial reconciliation, for instance, right now, is engaging in something that is sub-gospel and it is a distraction from the gospel. Can you see literally Jesus Christ saying that let's work out the ethic of what it means to live in my kingdom in, in helping others? Can you see him calling that a distraction? Of course not. Of course not. So you know the spirit that's driving that. You know the spirit when when someone says, well, uh, I, I advocate, I think we all should advocate the, the violent overthrow of the federal government in order to be able to usher in the kingdom of God. Can you see Jesus saying that? Of course not. In fact, if you understood the Bible, you would see that when Jesus was presented that option, he ran away and hid. John chapter 6, we want to make you a king. Nope. And he left. He left. All I'm saying is that if we will just assess truth claims by the person and the work, the commitment and the ministry of Jesus Christ and the New Testament and the Old Testament and how all of that informs all of it, we would be less susceptible to the things that get us so, so worked up. And so how is it that we can in a practical way, shore ourselves up against all of this. These, these truth claims that are out there. What can we do to prepare ourselves to assess these things properly? It all starts with the Word of God. Truth is ultimately determined by what God's Word says, and we can't be novices any more at all in what the Word of God says. We have to be people who are intimately familiar with what it says. And nine times out of ten, some of the things that begin to work their way out in American life and sometimes in church life could be corrected if people just knew what the Bible said. So, so let's make certain that we have a, a growing, deep connection to the Word of God. And then observe careful intake. Do you know how I know that I am getting in trouble when I am learning is when I find myself agreeing with everything I read or everything I watch, or if I wind up having all of my beliefs affirmed by everything that I am reading or everything I am watching. When that happens, when you find yourself just awash in information that agrees with how perfect your understanding of the situation is, you are not doing research anymore. You're being indoctrinated. You have, fallen, you have fallen in with a narrative and could potentially be used by that narrative to speak untruth. And so let me encourage you, read broadly, read objectively, and see what 
what the argument really is. And then finally, let me encourage you to read people, not about people. So many times in, in, in the world today, somebody will say, so-and-so said this. Well, rather than take that word for word, read the person. Read what they say. You know, I know of someone right now in, in our denomination's life who is right now at this very moment being vociferously accused of being a liberal and being a right-wing whack job because of something that we heard that so-and-so might have said. All you have to do is read the person. If you read the person, you could see exactly what it is they are saying. All of these things are practical ways by which we can begin to labor in the truth in the world in which we live. Because we are living in a post-truth world. And if followers of Jesus, who are known by being followers of the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, cannot be trusted in what they are saying, then we've lost the ballgame. We've lost the ballgame. So let's, let's test the spirits behind what we are hearing with the life and work of Jesus. Let's pray.